Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together. Father, we just commit this time of study to you. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would just give us understanding. Lord, we know that your Lord tells us that the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And so we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would just give us understanding and help us to comprehend, Lord, these truths, uh, these challenging statements that are made in this book. And Lord, I pray that you would impress these upon our hearts this morning, that Lord, although this is a historical account and Lord, prophetic, Lord, we'd also see the application to us. We just give you this time now. We ask your spirit to move in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Hosea, uh, as we said earlier, this is our last session going through this, and then we're just going to carry on working through the minor prophets. And uh, if they're all as good as Hosea, then I'm looking forward to the rest of the journey. Uh, I thought we could start with the conclusion this morning, because by the time we get to the end, in about three hours' time, you'll probably be tired and you'll be wanting to go, so you might switch off. So I thought we'd start with the end, and we can, you know, um, of course there won't be, won't be like that. Um, that. That's the summary of the book that we've gone through. We're in this section, uh, really the last few chapters now, last two chapters this morning, 13 and 14, uh, and we're seeing the whole emphasis is on the judgment that God is going to bring on Israel, that they've crossed the line, they've had so many opportunities to repent, that God has now said, enough, judgment is coming. And yet, even in this, we see God's mercy. And then finally, in chapter 14, there's this incredible refrain of hope that ends the book, that Israel will ultimately return to her God. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through. So this is something I just found from one pastor online, and I thought it was quite useful. So I'm just going to go through this, just some lessons that we can pull out of this. Um, so this, like in a sense, is our, our summary of the book. Um, firstly, nothing is able to quench God's love for us. Uh, we've seen that throughout this book, that even though Israel indulged in all sorts of iniquity and idolatry and so on, God never stops loving them. And Hosea is the great example of that, that he never stopped loving his wife. Even though she was unfaithful, he never gave up. He never said, that's enough. And it just shows God's love for us. Secondly, God suffers intense sorrow when men desert him. Now, that's something we probably don't tend to think about. We tend to think that, that God is kind of above those kind of things. But God, because of his great love for us, feels sorrow when we walk our own way, when we desert him and we go after the world, the flesh, the devil. The sacredness and sanctity of marriage typify our relationship with Jehovah, with the Lord God. In fact, Paul tells us that actually marriage, the, the reason for marriage is to show us the relationship that Christ has with his church. The consequences of following unworthy teachers are tragic. Israel were guilty of that. The church today at large is guilty of that. They heap up teachers saying the things that they want them to, want them to say. Um, people have itching ears. They don't want to hear about the truth. They don't want to hear about judgment. They just want to hear little platitudes saying, you know, that, well, we should all love each other and we should be tolerant of each other. And you know, what they mean is that we should all agree with them and they're not prepared to agree with what we say, what the Bible says. There can be no double standard of morals in God's kingdom. Israel were guilty of that. 
and so many even in the church today are. A nation declines rapidly when its leaders become corrupt. We've seen that. Uh, Internal corruption in a nation is more dangerous to its existence than foreign enemies. Now, now we don't, in this country, tend to think of the the threat of foreign enemies in maybe the same way that Israel would have done. Of course, we have the threat of terror forever looming over us. And, of course, there's been talk of that recently because of what's gone on uh, with uh, the evacuation of the British and American troops and so on from Afghanistan. And now they're talking about the the threat level may be higher and so on. So we're kind of aware of it in that sense. But Israel really knew the danger because they had enemies that were about to invade their land. We don't have that kind of threat. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this statement here is that the internal corruption in a nation is actually more dangerous. It does more damage to a nation than that which a foreign enemy could do. The greatest sin is that against true love. There's a real danger of becoming like those we associate with. 1 Corinthians 15.33 is a reference for that. But actually, there's a number of scriptures that allude to that. We're told in Psalms that we become like the gods we worship. You know, if you worship the world, then you'll become cold. You'll become numb to the things around you. You'll become materialistic. That's that's how the world is. But ultimately, the God that we worship, we want to become like him. David said in Psalms that he longed for that time when he'd awake in the likeness of Jesus or of his Messiah. The root from which all sins spring is unfaithfulness to God. That's an interesting statement. There's actually unfaithfulness to God that's actually the, the root of all the other things that, that then come upon us. John Piper made a, an interesting statement once. He said the taproot from which springs all the weeds of sin is unbelief in the promises of God. It's a similar kind of statement, you know, but it's that lack of faith, that lack of trusting God that then leads us to other things. Either in our own situation, we face a, a challenge or a situation we don't know how to deal with, and so we step in to help God. We've all done it, haven't we? And the, the real challenge is to wait. And personally, Joy and I are going through that at the moment, as we share with you, that time of just waiting on the Lord. Don't know what's going to happen next. Keep getting maybe a, kind of a hint that maybe the Lord is going to lead us in this way or that way. Still not sure. Still don't know. The temptation is to say, well, we've waited long enough. Let's do something. Well, Abraham and Sarah did that. They've been waiting. They've been waiting. And they've been waiting. And then they suddenly think, well, maybe, maybe the problem is that we're not doing anything. Maybe we should do something to help God here. And it all seems so logical, doesn't it, when we step in and help God out? But no. God is never in a hurry, but God is also never late. We need to learn to wait on him. Genuine repentance will bring forgiveness and full restoration to God's favor. There's a beauty in forgiving those who sin against us. It's a principle we find very much in the New Testament. We see it here as well with Hosea. The crushing blows of life can drive us to the arms of God. And even the captivity that the Lord allowed Israel to go into with the Assyrians was still grace. He didn't just destroy them. We saw this last time. Rather than, as with Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, those two other cities in the plain that we saw mentioned last time, they were destroyed. God allowed Israel to be taken captive. Why? So that in the midst of their captivity, they would realize what they'd lost. It's very much the prodigal son scenario. In that situation, the prodigal son realizes everything he'd lost and so decides to return to the father. 
That's what God allowed to happen with Israel. And although it was tragic that the northern kingdom was taken to captivity in Assyria and we'll read later of the cruelty of uh, the Assyrians, and yet even in that, God's grace was there, giving Israel the opportunity to repent and return to him. Who is he that may understand these things? Prudent that he may know them. For the ways of Jehovah are right, and the just shall walk in them, but transgressors shall fall therein. That's going to be our closing verse. Our goodness must be more permanent than the morning cloud, fog, and early dew. Again, we'll see that come out in a while. The last few of these, uh, may we not be half-baked Christians. We saw that analogy, speaking of Ephraim, as a cake not turned. It's kind of cooked on one side, but not really cooked on the other. You wouldn't really want to eat cake like that, would you? And therefore useless. And saying that the Ephraim would become like that, and the challenge, of course, for us as Christians is to don't be like that. Don't be really, really on fire for the Lord on a Sunday, but then the rest of the week you're kind of lukewarm towards the things of God. Of course, First Corinthians 10 says, All these things happen unto them, unto Israel, for examples. And they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world to come. There's so many lessons as we've already seen in all of these things. God still prefers goodness to heartless sacrifice. We'll see that come out again this morning also. And may we, like Hosea, be a living demonstration of our message. Corruption in politics is bad, but in religion it's inexcusable. God is not willing that any should perish, and especially his children. And finally, it appears to be a universal law of this sin-stricken world that God makes perfect through suffering, that redemption is wrought through sacrifice. And again, we'll see that come out. So let's just jump into the text, chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. What does this mean? Well, once upon a time, Ephraim were one of the most influential tribes of the northern kingdom. The other tribes listened to what they said. The idea when Ephraim spake trembling, it's not that Ephraim was trembling, it was the fact that he had this gravitas that the others around him took, took note, they listened. And he exalted himself in Israel. He became prominent, the tribe of Ephraim, amongst the other tribes. But he offended in Baal and he died. You know, he fell into idolatry. And as a tribe, they lost everything. The northern kingdom lost everything. Because you'll see as we go on that it wasn't just Ephraim. The whole of the northern kingdom followed that lead. Again, it was about to get even worse, as we'll see as we go on. You know, death is the penalty for sin. We're told that back in the Garden of Eden. And God made that declaration to Adam and Eve. And it's still true today. Verse 2, and now they sin more and more and have made their, their molten images, of their silver. You know, you know, they made these two cows, one in Dan, one in Bethel, because Jeroboam the first, we read, son of Nebatum, we're told the constant refrain through the book of uh, Kings and so on, is that who made all Israel to sin? He decided that he's going to set up two idols, one in Dan, one in Bethel, so that people didn't have to go back to Jerusalem didn't have to go to the temple because the fear was if they did, they might decide that they would follow after Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Jeroboam didn't want that, so he decides to lead the nation away into idolatry. 
So they made these modern images, these silver, these golden calves, uh, and they're silver they worship, the whole, all of this combined. Idols according to their own, their own understanding, all of it, the work of the craftsman. It's just so stupid. When you read that, you think, how can anybody be so foolish as to worship something that you've made? And then you think about us in our world today. And what do we spend most of our time doing? Worshipping the things we've made. Putting our confidence and our trust in the things that we've built. The things we've accomplished. And they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Again, these calves specifically that they'd um, built, these idolatrous things. Again, not only did they fall into sin, the real problem was that they were dragging other people along with them. And that's the danger. You see, very seldom do people just fall into sin on their own. It always has an impact on those around them. That's why we need to be so careful, because if we allow sin to take a foothold in our lives, it won't just affect us, it'll affect those that are around us. Yet that which they worshipped, as we've seen, was merely the work of their hands. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passeth away, and as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. Lots of analogies that are used here. Let's read this from John Gill, uh, one of the great saints of uh, times gone by. He wrote this. He said, uh, which, however, promising is, soon disappears. Speaking of the, the morning cloud, the early dew. When the sun is risen, signifying that the idolatrous Israelites, king, priests, and people should be no more. Their kingdom would cease. All their riches and wealth would depart from them. And they and their children would be carried captive into a strange land. That's what the Lord was saying to them, you know, through Hosea, that it's going to happen so swiftly, so suddenly. You know what it's like? You, know, you get up early, you look out, and you see that dew. I, it, when I was driving up to, to New Morden every day, I used to have that point. You come uh, through the Hinded Tunnel, you get to the top of the hill, and then you look down on the valley below. And it was, used to be so beautiful in the morning as the sun was coming up. You could just see the whole blanket of, of dew kind of uh, just covering uh, the, the bottom of the valley. It was a lovely, lovely picture. But before long, it's gone. You know, within the matter of you know half an hour, that all disappeared as the sun rises and it's, it's just gone. And this is how quickly is it going to come upon Israel. Verse 4, Yet I am the Lord thy God, and from the land of Egypt. And thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. So you hear God reminds them who he is, as if he needed to do that. But he says, yeah, I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt. That was the, the place where Moses had been sent to deliver the people, to lead them through the Red Sea, to bring them back to Sinai. And it was there that God had declared that he was the I am, the self-existent one. The God who delivered them from Egypt. And God reminds them that I was the God that delivered you in the midst of that, that slavery, that bondage, the incredible persecution that Israel were under as a nation. And God stepped in, heard their cry, raised up Moses to deliver them. And then the statement, of course, for there is no savior beside me. God saying even Moses was only raised up because God had called him. God is the only Savior. I love statements like this in the Old Testament because, of course, in the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the only Savior. And so for Jesus to be the only Savior, and if God says he's the only Savior, and Isaiah deals with this in many verses, Jesus must be God. People that try to say that Jesus is a Savior, but he's not God, completely miss the point. There is only one Savior, and it has to be God. 
Just reading from Jeremiah 23. We're going to get into the study of Jeremiah soon. Verse 7 and 8. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So here God is reminding them of Egypt and what he had done to deliver them. Jeremiah says there's a day coming where they won't look back to Egypt. They will consider how incredible it was that God has brought them back, not from the bondage slavery in Egypt, but from the world, and that God has restored them to their own land. And they say, and Jeremiah said, that is going to be such an amazing thing. that they, they won't talk about the Egypt thing anymore because it will be how amazing God was. And this will, of course, take place at the second coming as Jesus comes back, establishes his throne in Jerusalem. And the Jews will, those that have not already, we, we heard Bob was sharing earlier, how many Jews already returning to the land. A huge influx, as the scripture says, would happen. But there will still be that final ingathering at the time of the second coming. Verse 5, I did know thee in the wilderness. God speaks kind of in a really compassionate tone. There was that relationship there. I did know thee in the wilderness in the land of great drought. It's interesting, isn't it, that it was in the time of their trouble when they walked in the wilderness. They had this relationship with God. It's just, and then God goes on and says, according to their pasture, so were they filled. You know, it seems to be speaking of the pasture land that God had given them for their flocks and everything else. Everything that they needed, God provided. In the wilderness, they had the manna provided for them. They had water from the rock. The Lord provided everything they needed. They were filled and their heart was exalted. You see, God gave them everything. And then we read, therefore have they forgotten me. Then they did what so many have done, and that is they turned the blessings that God had given them into a source of idolatry and immorality and so on, a reason to forget God. You know, I've said this many, many times in the past, that I've seen Christians that have prayed for the Lord to bless them in a particular way. You know, it's lovely to see Lekker and Yana here this morning. They've just moved house. They only moved in yesterday. You know, I've known people that have moved house and then we don't see them at church for a month or two because, well, they've got to sort the house out. No, no, they came. They wanted to come and worship God. You know, so often, though, the blessings that God gives become something that then keeps us from God. You know, I've known of couples that have been praying for families and the Lord has blessed them with children and then they don't come to church because they want to spend time with their family. Or people that have prayed that the Lord would give them a particular job and the Lord has granted the request and they've got a job and, and then suddenly they can't come to church because you know, they're too busy with work and they need time on the weekend to unwind. So sad. I've seen it so many times. You know, it's exactly what we're seeing here. That God has blessed Israel, given them everything, and then with all their abundance, they just turned around and said, well, thank you very much. We're going to worship these things that we've made with our own hands now. There's a lot of parallels with our world today. Verse 7, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion and as a leopard by the way I uh, will observe them. The idea of lions and leopards, you know, you've seen them on the documentaries and things. They crouch down, they hide in the long grass, and they sneak up really quietly, don't they, on their prey. 
and suddenly they pounce. And that's how the Lord is saying it's going to be really sudden and quick. Uh, the enemies of Israel are about to jump on them. Verse 8 says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, the cubs. And I will rend the call of their heart, and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Now, you can't just skip over this verse without highlighting. Some of you may have already seen it. But the similarities to the things that we see in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. We've got a lion. Well, that was the nation of, or the, the kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. The leopard was symbolic of Greece. The bear, Medo-Persia. And then this, this beast, this wild beast, symbolized the Roman Empire. Interesting, all nations that after this time ruled over Israel. And I can't help but see a, a link there. Uh, the fact that those four creatures are listed in these two verses. The four nations that would go on after um, this Assyrian invasion, the ones that would subdue the nations and rule over them. And again, prophetically given to us in Daniel 2, Daniel 7. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. You know, that is the summary of all who indulge in sin. You've destroyed yourself. People say, well, why would a God of love send people to hell? God of love doesn't want anybody to go to hell. The God of love sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The God of love is a God who is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But sadly, many choose to reject the offer. And just as God says here to Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, so it will be said to all those who spend an eternity separated from God. You've destroyed yourself. You've rejected the only option. But in me is that help. That's what God says to Israel. It's the same as will be said to everybody that turns away from God and chooses not to accept salvation through Jesus. I will be thy king. It's almost that I want to be your king. I want you to accept me as your king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? There's no other deliverer there's no other judge and it says and thy judges of whom thou said give me a king and princes you remember back in the time of Saul when the nation cried out Samuel was distraught because he saw the reality that they were rejecting God's rule over them they wanted to be like the nations around them as verse 11 says I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath Saul particularly was appointed as king, and then because of his rebellion against God, because of his lack of trust, lack of faith, goes back to that point we were making earlier, led to all the other sins in his life. Interesting study looking at Saul and how he fell from God's grace because of his own pride, arrogance, lack of trust in God. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid. What does this mean? Well, what it's saying is it's all been counted, it's been, it's been stored up. His sin may be hid for now. And see, this is the problem with so many in the world, that they think their sin has gone unnoticed. And so people just carry on thinking that they can get away with it. And yet we're told in Ecclesiastes 3.15 that God requires an account of that which is past. What this verse is saying is that the iniquity of Ephraim is all stored up. It's all been counted. Records have been kept. 
His sin is hid, but there's a time coming that the punishment, the judgment from God will come. You know, there are only two options. Either we must pay for our sin ourselves as every thought, every word, every deed that we have ever said. Either we have to pay for that ourselves and it's an impossible debt to pay or Jesus pays for it. But I want you to notice that because sometimes even as Christians we tend to think that if we sin and we go and we ask forgiveness that God just forgets it. It's just pushed away. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. That's not, that's not the reality at all. It has to be paid for. Do you remember we said earlier, the punishment, the penalty for sin is death. It has to be paid for. And either we have to pay ourselves, which again is something we cannot do. It means ultimately separation from God for eternity, or Jesus pays for it. But the reality is that Jesus pays for it if we go to him, but it has to be paid for. There's a cost associated and punishment that goes with it. Years ago, my sister wrote a song called Tear Stained Eyes. It's a lovely song. And there was a line in the chorus that said, every wrong thing we do drives those nails deeper. Every wrong thing we say causes him more pain. And for years, it kind of just, I kind of played around with that in my mind, thinking, is that theologically correct? Is it the right, the right statement? And, you know, the more I think about it, and reading books like Hosea, you realize, actually, that's the case. Every time we sin, it has to be paid for. It grieves the Spirit of God when we sin. Verse 13, the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. Maybe a clumsy translation. Um, a lot of commentaries have said that Hosea is not an easy book to translate because he uses um, typical um, expressions and things that were unique to the northern kingdom. So it's not the easiest to translate. But let me try and give you uh, an understanding of this verse. Adam Clark says this, as there is a critical time in a parturition in which the mother in hard labor may by skillful assistance be eased of her burden, which, if neglected, may endanger the life both of the parent and child. So there was a time in which Ephraim might have returned to God, but they would not. Therefore, they are now in danger of being finally destroyed. The idea of this verse is that of a woman in labor, and there comes a time that that baby wants to come out. And it was as if saying to Israel, you, you, you've rejected, you've missed that time. And, and now you're, like, you're going to forfeit your life because, as it says, you're an unwise son. That's the idea that's being presented. And then at verse 14, another verse that's uh, debated by some commentators, but there's a general theme that they're pretty much all in agreement with. we we'll just read it. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Now you might recognize the kind of tone of that, and you should do because it comes from, or we get the quoting of it in the New Testament from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 53 to 55, let me read it. For this corruptible, these bodies we have now, must put on incorruption, the new bodies that we're going to receive. 
And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Did you ever wonder where that was written before as you've read that in Corinthians? Well, that saying that is written comes from Hosea. And Paul says this, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now, it's interesting because it's not a direct quote. And Paul seems to kind of twist this on its head. Let me try and explain. Let's look at the verse again. God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And it almost seems contradictory because it goes on, O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. It's almost as if the first two verses are saying that God is going to redeem them and ransom them. And then the second part of the verse seems to be saying that God is going to judge them. So what is it? Well, the Hebrew implies a negative. Looking through most of the commentaries, it seems to be kind of a... Uh, there's some disagree, but a number of them uh, see it this way. Um, the, the I wills are inserted by the translators. So in the, the, the verse, if we to read it as the, the Hebrew is, it's literally ransom them from the power of the grave, redeem them from death. So is it a question? Is it a statement? I think it's a more of a, uh, a rhetorical device. It's like, will I ransom them? Will I redeem them? No, and then it goes on. Now the response is, O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. A repentance shall be here from my eyes. God turning away from Israel and saying, no, I'm not going to repent of this judgment that's coming upon you. And this obviously fits the context. Uh, one commentator said the context here is in the midst of the most severe denunciations to be found in the whole Bible. God speaking to Israel in these incredible terms. So I'll read this to you. This was a... Uh, from the commentary by Dr. Thomas uh, Constable. I thought this was actually quite helpful. He said, The Lord asked rhetorically if he would buy the Israelites back out of death's hand. Would he pay a price for their redemption? No. Compassion would be hid from his sight. He would have no pity on them. He appealed for death like a thorn bush to torment the Israelites as though thorns tore their flesh. He called on the grave as a hornet to sting them fatally. That's where those ideas come from. Later in history, God did provide a ransom for his people from the power of the grave, and he redeemed them from death. He did this when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. God's future redemptive work for his people meant that death would not be the end for Israel, even though judgment in the near future was inevitable. The Apostle Paul quoted the famous couplet in, his, in, in this verse in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five, which we looked at and applied it to the effect of Christ's redemption on all of God's people. Death and the grave are not the final judgment and home of the believer because God did provide a ransom and redeemed his people. God has a glorious future beyond his punishment for sin for his own, for both national Israel and for Christians. Paul's use of this passage does not support the view that the church fulfills God's promises concerning Israel. You know, the idea that, the church is a new Israel. Nowhere will you find that in Scripture. Here in Hosea, the promise is that Israel would indeed suffer death and the grave, not that she would escape it. Paul turned the passage around and showed that Jesus Christ's resurrection overcame the judgment and death that are inevitable for sinners. I'll let you take that away and dig deeper if you want to. It's fascinating the more you dig into that. You start to see, again, God's incredible working through history. But it's as if 
Israel were in this predicament. There was no escape from death and from the grave until the Messiah comes. And then there's another little play on words for Ephraim. It's saying, though he be fruitful, you remember back in Genesis chapter 48, as Jacob's naming and praying for, uh, it's not naming, but uh, um, speaking his blessings over his children. Ephraim, the name means blessing. Jo- Joseph gave his son that name, that I've become fruitful in the land of my sufferings. So J- uh, Ephraim's name means fruitful. And Jacob prays accordingly. He says, though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness and his spring shall become dry. His fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Now the east wind, no doubt being in Syria here, that's the the idiom that's being used. But that east wind in the Middle East at the time, or even today, it brought this really dry and arid heat into the land that resulted in destruction to crops and livestock. And, And the Lord is saying that Ephraim was to be fruitful and yet this wind is going to come and they're going to cease to bear fruit. Samaria, now Samaria, of course, was the capital of the northern kingdom. She'll become desolate, for she has rebelled against a God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their woman with child shall be ripped up. It's a horrible verse, isn't it, to read? It makes us uncomfortable. You can't read that and not be a little bit uncomfortable. This is speaking of what the Assyrians really would do. Now, now, first of all, Samaria did indeed become desolate. You know, king after king that had been based in Samaria as their capital had forsaken God and had served after Baal. But it's a horrible statement that follows. They shall fall by the sword. This is what the Assyrians did when they came in. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces. You see, anybody that wasn't old enough to serve in the army as far as the uh, Assyrians or to work as a slave for the Assyrians, they killed them. They had no use for them. They just killed them. And then women with child shall be ripped up. They would literally kill the pregnant mothers to stop any more children being born, to stop the possibility that a new generation would arise that would be then a threat to the Assyrian Empire. These things happened. And we look at it, and it's abhorrent. It makes us feel sick. And yet, as we've already heard this morning, somewhere about 800 children, babies a day, are murdered in this country, mainly for the reason of convenience, for pleasure. And the world just looks the other way and says, well, a woman has a right to choose. Yeah. What about the baby? The baby has a right to choose too. Just reading from one of the commentaries, Yahweh, the Lord God, would hold Samaria, that's uh, Metanoia, the type for Israel, guilty for rebelling against him, a covenant Lord and God. Israel's soldiers would die in battle, her children would suffer unmerciful executions, and the Assyrians would even cut open her pregnant women with their swords. And you can see those scripture references. I've put this there because it's useful to look at the other places where God had foretold this would happen if Israel disobeyed. This gruesome form of execution killed both mother and the unborn child, making it impossible for the coming generation eventually to rise up and rebel against the conqueror. These were the curses that the Lord warned would follow rebellion against the terms of his covenant. Again, you see those references. You can look them up if you want to. But the last chapter, we see a change in theme. It's a short chapter, just nine verses. Leon Wood made this comment in his commentary on Hosea. He said, in beauty of expression, these final words of Hosea 
rank with the most memorable chapters of the Old Testament. Like the rainbow after a storm, they promise Israel's final restoration. Here is the full flowering of God's unfaithful love for his faithless people, the triumph of his grace, the assurance of his healing, all described in imagery that reveals the loving heart of God. So let's look at these verses. Verse 1, chapter 14. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. You know, the word return is the word shuab uh, in the, the Hebrew. It's used 21 times in Hosea. Now, you may not think that means anything, but I challenge you to start looking. There's various tools online. Blue to Bible is a great one. There's many. And they'll tell you, you can look at any particular word. You can see how often it's used. I can tell you now that there is significance in the number. There is so much detail and design in the Bible that God has put there. As you know, I love Psalm 119. There are a number of expressions for the word of God in Psalm 119. Precepts, commandments, statutes, judgments, and so on. Do you know any of those? They occur 21 times. Why? Well, 21 is 3 times 7. 3 in Scripture is the number of divine. The Trinity, of course, Father, Son, Spirit. Seven always has this idea of being complete. Seven days in the week, seven colors in the rainbow, seven notes in a musical scale. The eighth note is the beginning of a new octave. Seven is just complete, wherever you look in Scripture. Uh, It's just complete divine wisdom. So there's no surprise. You start to see these patterns all through. 21 times the Lord uses this expression in the book of Hosea. Return. That constant calling to them. And then here we have this this time. Oh, Israel, return unto the Lord their God. And of course, after many days of repentance, Israel will finally return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would take things like the Assyrian captivity and then for the northern kingdom, for the southern kingdom, for Judah, the Babylonian captivity. And then, of course, the Romans coming and the dispersion around the world. It would take all of that and the Holocaust and everything else. And what is coming? The tribulation. It will take all of that for Israel finally to return to the Lord their God. But Paul says in Romans 11, For I would not, brethren, speaking to us, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, something that was once concealed is now unveiled, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. Why in part? Well, because some of the Jews believed. It became the church. The church was Jewish. The early church was all Jews. Up until about Acts 10, when Peter goes up to Cornelius, The church was Jewish. So blindness in part. So for the unbelieving Jews, blindness came upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. That blindness doesn't last forever. It's only until God has gathered in all the Gentiles. And so all Israel shall be saved. All Israel. What does it mean, all Israel? It means the believing Jews that became part of the church and the unbelieving Jews that rejected their Messiah. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Paul stating it, just as Hosea's recording it here, that there's going to come a time that God will take away their sins. But notice what I, remember what I said earlier? It has to be paid for. And the only way to pay for it is the blood of Christ. Verse 2, take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, so we will render the calves of our lips. 
It may seem a strange expression to us. Albert Barnes said this, the material sacrifice, so this is what we read in Leviticus, the sacrifice they were to offer, the bullock, was offered, consumed, and passed away. Their lips were offered and remained. A perpetual thank offering, even a living sacrifice, living unlike, living unlike the mercies for which they had thanked, giving forth their endless song for never-ending mercies. It's just saying that rather than offering sacrifices of cows, goats, and so on, they're going to offer the sacrifice of their lips, this worship, this adoration to this Lord that restores and redeems them. Asher, or Assyria, really, shall not save us, nor will we ride upon horses, neither will any say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in thee the fatherless finds mercy. Finally Israel will come to that place, they'll realize that actually the works of our hands are not God. The things that we can produce are not worth trusting in. Lesson learned. But it took Israel some or it will take some 2,000, well, from this time, 2,700 years. It would take for them to finally come to this place, which is still yet to come. When they will, as Zechariah says, they will look upon me, they'll look upon Jesus whom they pierced, and they will mourn. David said in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Oh, if Israel had only learned that lesson from David. They're not going to trust in horses. They're not going to trust in Assyria. They'd have gone to Assyria to try and deliver and help them and save them. And eventually Assyria comes and leads them away captive. And God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away from him. Remember again, the cost of grace is the blood of the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. These verses are only possible because of the blood of Christ. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. You know, the millennial kingdom of Christ will be a time of unparalleled blessing for the nation of Israel. That is yet to come. They that dwell under the shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Just uh, see again Psalm 91, Sharon's verse of the week a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. It speaks about being in that place of safety under the shadow of his wing. The Lord is just saying to the nation, come, come to that place of safety. Not worshipping the world, the flesh, the devil, things of this life. Become that place of safety in me. And that call goes out to all of us this morning. Wherever you are, wherever is going on in your life, return to the Lord. God is pleading with you, come back. I just want to read this to you because I thought it was great. This is again from Adam Clark. He said this, uh, just picking up that, that phrase there, they shall revive as the corn. There's real insights. He says, uh, the justice and beauty of this metaphor is not generally perceived. After the corn has been a short time above the earth in a single spike, the blades begin to separate and the stalk to uh, spring out of the center. The side leaves turn back and make way for the protruding stalk and fall bending down to the earth, assuming a withered appearance, though still attached to the plant. 
To look at the corn in this state, no one unacquainted with the circumstance could entertain any sanguine hope of a copious harvest. In other words, you look at it, you don't think it's going to produce anything. In a short time, other leaves spring out. The former freshen and begin to stand erect, and the whole seems to revive from a vegetative death. This is the circumstance to which the prophet refers. They shall revive as the corn. Though they look dead, though the nation of Israel looked like God had given up on them, there's going to come a time that they will return to their Messiah and they will burst into life. The other expression here, the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Albert Barnes says this, he says, The grapes of Lebanon have been of the size of plums. Its wine has been spoken of as the best in the East or even in the world. Formerly Israel was as a luxuriant but empty vine, bringing forth no fruit to God. Isaiah 10 verse 1, God looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Isaiah Isaiah 5 verse 2. Now, its glory and luxuriance should not hinder its bearing fruit and that the noblest of its kind. Rich and fragrant is the odor of its grapes, the inspiration of the Spirit of God and not fleeting, but abiding. Just saying how wonderful it's going to be when Israel finally acknowledge, accept their Messiah, when they finally repent and they come back. And we're told, Paul says, that if the casting away of Israel has been a blessing to the world, how much more their fullness? Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I'm like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. You know, This really struck me last night, that after all Israel has gone through, there's going to come a time that they're going to say, the things of this world didn't profit. What have I to do anymore with idols? They haven't helped us. Paul says in Romans, you know, you look at those things of which you're now ashamed, and what fruit did you have in them? None. What a sad thing that so many Christians today end up going and playing around with things of the world, only to come back eventually, like the prodigal son, to that place of realizing that it was so much better to be in the Father's house. Israel finally coming back. And again, I think in this verse is that joy and the weeping of the prodigal son. You remember, as the prodigal son goes home, he went home in shame and despondent, but the joy when he saw his father, and his father welcomed him with open arms. And Israel, this nation through whom God has given us his word, through whom the Messiah was born into this world, this nation will be brought back into this wonderful abiding relationship. Ephraim, remember as I said earlier, his name means fruitful, will become all that God intended. Do you know, we said before that the glory of anything is to fulfill the purpose for which it was created. The glory of a flower is to flower. What is the purpose that we've been created? It's to bring forth glory to God, that we may be transformed into his likeness. Ephraim finally will become that which God intended them to be. And then the last verse, who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Interestingly, Hosea, one of the only books in the Bible that gives us kind of a summary of his own book at the end. So who is wise? If you're a wise person, then take note of this stuff. Prudent, and you shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. 
Adam Clark says this, he who is well instructed will make a proper application of what he's uh, here read, will tremble at the threatenings and embrace the promises of his God. He goes on and says, in the Targum, that's a Jewish translation of the Old Testament, he says it's worthy of the most serious attention because it translates it slightly differently, that verse. He says, the ways of the Lord are right and the just who walk in them shall live forever, but the ungodly, because they have not walked in them, shall be delivered into hell. He says, how instructive, how convincing, how awakening, and yet how consolatory are the words of this prophecy. Reader, you and I this morning, lay them to heart. A godly mind cannot consider them in vain. Such shall know them and know that the ways of the Lord are right. In two weeks' time, we're going to begin our journey through the book of Joel. So read ahead. But let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible record we have of Hosea's life, of his ministry, Lord, of his love for his wife. But Lord, also is the compassion that we see in his heart for his nation and that you could use him, Lord, to deliver these messages to that nation that had hardened its heart against you. And yet, Lord, we see this hope. Lord, this hope for even those hardest of hearts, for our children, if they don't know you, Lord, that they could return Oh, we pray, Lord, for our unsaved loved ones, be it children or husbands or wives or parents. We pray for them, Lord, that they would return to you. That, Lord, you would reach out to them by your grace, by your mercy. That their eyes would be open to realize that the work of our hands, everything that we put our store in in this life is nothing. But a relationship with you is everything. Oh, and that, Lord, you are waiting with open arms to welcome those back who have gone astray. So, Lord, we do pray this morning for those unsaved loved ones. We pray, Lord, for those in this world, in our community, in this nation, that are lost, that are despairing, that don't know where to turn. Lord, we have this message of hope, this message of reconciliation, restoration. Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to take the message of Hosea to the people we know. Lord, we thank you for this time and this study. Lord, again, impress these things upon our hearts. We ask in the name of Jesus. For his glory. Amen.